Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of Colts Killers and Cocktails with Jen and Vanessa. Please be advised the following episode is for mature audiences only. We talk about content that may be triggering to some individuals and contain discussions regarding rape, murder, sex, suicide, religious organizations, and disturbing situations. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Colts Killers and Cocktails. I'm Jen. I'm Vanessa. And we're here again with another story and we're recording two. So this should be published actually relatively soon. This is how we're the most productive. True. Very, very true. We have to set deadlines for ourselves and we have to record more than one episode a night. Mm-hmm. All right. So are you ready for today's cult? I'm ready to jump in. Have you ever heard of the phrase, today is the first day of the rest of your life? You know, usually with these, like I say, no, immediately. But yeah, I actually have heard that. Yeah. So that phrase was actually coined by a man named Charles Diedrich. Okay. And he was the leader of the group Synanon. Of course he was. Have you ever heard of Synanon? No. All right. You're in for a treat. Here we go. So Charles Diedrich started this group in a storefront in Santa Monica in 1958. He used to be an alcoholic. He, you know, um, overcame his addiction with AA. And he was known in AA specifically for attending pretty much every single meeting. And when he did, he would speak for like pretty much the entire time. Really, he's one of those people. But he was a great orator. So like a lot of people were like really drawn to him. Okay. So it was the guy that you're like, okay, I don't mind that he's speaking the entire time. Okay. Usually I run into people where I mind where they're speaking. The <laughs> yeah. Like, so. please just let me think. <laughs> let me leave this meeting early, please. So he, just to give a little background on him, he did not have a college education, which is totally fine, mm-hmm. but he also had no experience in therapy besides his experience with AA. With, if you guys don't know it, AA is Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. So back then, Alcoholics Anonymous did not allow people that were addicted to drugs to be in it. It was literally only for alcoholics. Really? Mm-hmm. And he had a huge problem with it. So he created a program that was inclusive for alcoholics and for people that were addicted to drugs. And this was the Santa Monica Center that he opened in the 50s called Tender Loving Care. TLC. TLC. This guy is just like starting everything. Okay. Trendsetter. I'm getting good vibes, but I feel like that's going to stop very soon. So pretty much he is known for the game. And... The type of group therapy where you would make someone change because you make them feel extremely bad about themselves. Ooh. So the game, like we said earlier, is when one member would pretty much go up and they'd share about themselves just like they do in AA, you know, get everything off their chest, share their deepest, darkest secrets. And then after that, they would be criticized by all of their peers, like ridiculed, made fun of, everything. There was just only one rule, and that was you can't get violent and you can't use bad language. And this would start as, like, one-hour sessions, but as this group keeps going and going, it would go into, like, 72-hour sessions. Yeah, that's not – that doesn't help not wanting to use alcohol or drugs. Yeah. So this started again as a drug rehab center, but – he, he was not very successful. His success rate was like 10%. Shocking. 
Yeah. But a lot of people were drawn to it. So even like the court system would send them people because there's nothing for people that are addicts, drug addicts. So they would be going to tender loving care. Um, In 1958, they decided to change the name to Synodon. They were like doing a seminar and someone said seminar and he thought someone else heard Synodon. So that's how like they came up with the name. Oh, okay. So that's where it came from. Got it. It was a two-year residential drug rehab program, but they also had a business that sold like those tchotchke items, like little keychains, and you know the stuff that you put like company logos on. Yeah, and it was generating about ten million a year oh back then. Oh my god! So like business is booming, right? In 1959, they started to grow, and they moved from this little storefront and they moved into an armory. It was just an open building; nothing specific about it being an armory. Okay. At this point. He starts to tighten his group and just tell them, like, you guys aren't really allowed to question anything. I am in charge of this, like, rehab group. Whatever I say goes. In 1964, authorities were tipped off that they were running an unauthorized medical clinic because they had people there that were in the medical community that were practicing just on the residents that were in there. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in 1967... They decided to move from the armory to the beach at this place called Casa de Mar, which is now like the super bougie hotel. Ooh. Yeah. Um, but there were a ton of zoning issues that were brought up because people that were living there, it was a pretty well-off neighborhood. They didn't want to be living next to a bunch of drug addicts and alcohol addicts. And it wasn't zoned for a rehab center. It's a residential area. So this made a ton of press. Okay. So when it made press, a lot of people in Hollywood were like, wow, this is like a really cool program. We should start supporting it. At that time, it starts to gain a lot of traction. Charles then goes to jail because he's practi- he's uh, running a rehab program and he has no background in rehab therapy, no college education or anything. He goes to jail for like six months. Okay. And he gets out of jail. He has all this funding from these Hollywood people that are backing him. Like Jane Fonda, her and her husband would go to the game and, you know, different seminars that he would put on just to experience everything that was happening and a ton of other people from Hollywood. At that point, when Charles gets out of jail, they decided that they wanted to become more isolated and they started building a city. So they they bought a bunch of land. People, when they joined, they had to start giving up their assets. Of course they did. Yeah. So you're pretty much joining to get better, but you're giving up everything Mm -hmm. once you get in. Children that were considered community children, like in the 60s, they had their contact with their parents severed. You were raised as a collective group. You weren't raised by your parents. So could you even see your parents? Like, you could see your parents, uh-huh. but it wasn't like you're going to see them every day type deal. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine the mindfuck that would be for the parents? Oh, no. I, I, I literally can't. I mean, the children as well, but yeah. my gosh. And the way they raised kids was just crazy. If you were older than four years old, you're allowed to pay, play the game. So you were subject to that verbal abuse and just feeling horrible about yourself. Four years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 78, there was a grand jury that actually issued a report for strong evidence of child abuse. That's well, like how crazy they were treating all of these kids. Yeah, because you can't even, like some kids can't even speak at four years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the group's still progressing. In 68, they decided to start the lifestyle membership. And the lifestyle membership said that you can have jobs and you can live outside of our little commune, but you still have to give all of your money to the organization. Well, I would say I'm not getting a job then. 
Yeah. And then also after that was established, they were like, once you're in this, you can't leave. Like if you join our group, you are in this group for life. Again, this is still picking up traction. People are getting into it. They're making a lot of money. Um, They started to have multiple centers in California. In 1974, they're gaining all this traction. It's really popular. Charles decides that he wants to apply for church status. Oh, no. It's rejected, but he still has the mindset where he is, you know, running this as a religion. Mm -hmm. He decides to uh, change the rules at this time. So, for example, um, a couple years before this, his wife passed away, and he, like, really loved his wife. But it was really hard for him to meet people, and he was like, if I can't really be happy and find someone and settle down, I don't really want anyone to be happy. So he made all of the couples that were currently married get a divorce. Oh, my God. And then established mate swapping. I knew you were going to say some bullshit like that. Yeah. So even his son, his son, there were reports that said that he was in love with his wife, like head over heels in love with her. He made his son divorce his wife and then marry someone else. And if... Let's say you and I were married. If we decided to to be like, okay, fine, we're going to do the divorce thing because that's what he said. Mm -hmm. No big deal. But I don't want to really choose somebody because I'm not in love with anyone. He would choose your spouse for you. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this made like hundreds of people leave, but there were still like a couple hundred people that stayed. Can you, how'd they leave? Did they just like sneak out? Just leave. I mean, it wasn't a thing where other cults where people were like, People were scared to leave, but you could do it if you needed to. Oh, my God. That's that's one of the most wild things that you've said. Isn't that crazy? That's wild. So at this point, too, he was like, these kids are costing us so much money. Like, since it became a commune and everything, they had like 150 children, like living Mm -hmm. with them. So all men had to get vasectomies. It was non-negotiable. And then if women were pregnant, they were forced to get abortions. Okay. But there was one person that didn't have to get a vasectomy. Him, right? Yeah. And his reasoning was, I make the rules and I don't have to follow them. (laughs) And I don't know if I want to have kids one day. Of course you don't. Okay. Yeah. It's just getting crazier, crazier, and crazier. One instance of the game, there was a person that was dared to shave their head. And they were like, okay, fine. I'll do it. So he shaved his head. The guy that dared him to shave his head shaved his head. Then it started becoming a thing. A lot of people in this group shaved their heads. You know what I immediately think of? Mm-hmm. Mean Girls when Regina George cuts her tank top right. and like shows her purple bra. That's immediately <laughs> what I'm thinking of right now. Yeah. So after that kind of died down, they decided to use that as punishment. So if you did something to make Charles angry, there was a barber that you would go to and you would have to have your head shaved. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, around this time, too, he's starting to drink again. In one instance, I was dating somebody, and there was a game session going on. And nobody's allowed to talk bad about Charles during the game, of course. Of course. And a woman was making fun of his sex life because she was like, I've been there, and it's not all that great. Ooh, burn. Yeah, so he is getting extremely violent. He um, is letting people now resort to violence. Um, when we talked earlier about people leaving... It's kind of like Scientology. So if you left Synanon, nobody in Synanon is allowed to talk to you anymore. So that's why it was kind of hard for families because people would stick around if their husband and their kids were still there. Because um, like if you left the cult and you still had a husband and a son there, sometimes they would move your husband and your son. So you have no idea 
where they are and you can't contact them anymore because they have centers everywhere at this point. So it almost have to be like a group decision. Like if you want to stay with your family, if not, then. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a group decision. And again, like we said, they're getting ballsy and they're getting more and more um, violent. So one example is in the seventies, Synanon was said to be involved in the disappearance of Rose Lena Cole. And this was an instance where a dad tried to get the kid back and the daughter and they just kept moving them. The Los Angeles Police Department decided to search one of the ranches that they had. And they found a recorded speech by Dietrich at that time that said, we're not going to mess with the old time, turn the other cheek religious postures. Our religious posture is don't mess, don't mess with us. You can get killed, dead, literally dead. These are real threats. They are draining life's blood from us and expecting us to play by their silly rules. We will make the rules. I see nothing frightening about it. I am quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next break his wife's legs and then threaten to cut their child's arm off. That is the end of that lawyer. That is a very satisfactory, humane way of transmitting information. I really do want an ear and a glass of alcohol on my desk. So funny story. Oh my God. There was a lawyer. There was a lawyer that was representing people like the husband of Miss Cole, and he was trying to make a stand against Synanon because he knew all the crazy things that were happening. Obviously, he pissed off Charles to the point where two of the Synanon followers put a rattlesnake in his mailbox. They also cut the rattles off so he wouldn't hear it, and he literally almost died in the hospital. Luckily, they got him, you know, the... Antidote in time. Yeah. But if he didn't remember what it looked like, because he didn't hear it, oh he would have died. God. And this was in 78. Also, the Synanon uh, group, they beat a trucker after he cut them off just while driving on the road. They tracked him down, went to his house, pulled him outside in his front yard, and beat him in front of his family until he almost died. That's a bad case of road rage. That's, Wow. Yeah. In the 78, NBC did a special on them and they started to receive threat letters. So the word is finally out that they're so hateful towards people. Another guy spoke out against them the next day, came home and found his dog dead. <gasps> yeah. And again, this is just keeps going and going and going. And Charles is making the most like outlandish rules. For example, he bought a Harley, was loving it. Mm -hmm. It was great. And then he decided that everyone had to buy a Harley. Oh, my God. So he bought everyone in the group, like, motorcycles, except the people that are in the lowest ranks. They, of course, have to pay for their own motorcycles. Of course. You know, um, there were multiple accidents. Someone died. Another person lost their leg because they were not given training or anything like that. They were just saying, now you ride motorcycles. He's, like, a follow the leader, and he always has to be the leader. Yeah, and the thing was, like, this group did not get popular until he was... Like, in his late 40s. Wow. So it's not like something that's like he's had power, you know, this entire right. time and the power's gone to his head. It's just crazy. So, yeah. Um, again, 1978, Charles is arrested again. But this time it's for conspiracy to commit murder. And three other people that were his followers were also arrested as well. And this was in regards to the snake incident. Right. But he only received probation because he had really poor health. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I know. What? <laughs> the 70s were great. Uh, the rules were, hey, you can't talk to Synanon. You have to like relinquish your leadership. And he died in 1983 due to uh, cardio failure. Goodbye. 
Yeah. Um, so after that, IRS did an investigation on them. They had tax exempt status for a certain point because they were a therapeutic organization. And it, they revoked their tax exempt status and made them pay back $17 million. Oh, my God. And this made them go bankrupt. I was going to say they probably don't even have $17 million. Yeah. So if you, I mean, you said you didn't know about Synanon. So mm-hmm. that's why they're not here in the United States, but there is still a place in Germany in operation that still practices. Do we know who With the, the game techniques and all that stuff. And do we know, like, the leader, like, if he's older or anything? Or It was just one of the leaders from there that, from here that went over there. So, oh, my God. Yeah. Gosh. That's sending on. That's awful. Thank you. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's insane. You want to play a game? Would you like to play a game? Yeah. I just don't understand. The th- it's crazy that he coined the most famous phrase mm-hmm. ever. That people will wake up in the mirror and be like, today's the first day of the rest of your life. Yeah. Now Such I hate Such a positive that. phrase, right? I hate that. I hate that phrase now. And this guy's a psychopath. He is a psychopath. And I'm, I mean, I'm still stuck on the children, like, being able to participate in the game. Well, and forcing people to have the vasectomies. When they were getting these mandated vasectomies, yeah. it was insane because they were doing it at the medical facility in Synanon with, like, the quote-unquote trained medical professionals oh my god so there were accidents where one guy they accidentally cut a vein and his like entire scrotum filled with blood and he had to go to the real hospital so like it's just (sighs) crazy the amount of stuff that's happened with this group i don't have a scrotum and my scrotum just quivered (laughs) yeah oh my My, god that's sending on well that was awful thank you very much and now we can get into our drink for this week yes all right, Vanessa, tell me what's in this amazing cocktail. Okay, so this is actually called a Rumple Snuggler. After taking a sip of this, I kind of want to snuggle something right I now. Know, I want to just snuggle the Rumple Mints. <laughs> but it has about an ounce and a half of Baileys in it, which is the Espresso Baileys. And it has about a half ounce of um, Rumple Mints. And you just mix hot chocolate in, pour some marshmallows if you want to get a little bit fancy, put some whipped cream in it. It's really good. I love it. Yes. And actually, I made this cocktail because a friend of me and Jen's just actually recently passed away. And he actually always drank Rumplemints. Like, I never saw this man without a Rumplemints in his hand in my entire time knowing him. So this one is for you, Tillman. You died entirely too soon. Agreed. So rest in peace. So, okay, for our story, we are going to go back in time, as we always do, to March 7th, 2009. To the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. Love Ohio. We were just there a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. It was really good. I had kangaroo tacos. Yeah, that was funky. It was weird, but I had a margarita with it, so. <laughs> it, it helps. Was, it, it bounces it, it was, out. It was all right. So we're going to talk about a girl named Esme Kennedy. She was born on January 20th, 1996. At the time, she was 13 years old, and she was a seventh grader at the School for the Creative and Performing Arts with a dual major in vocal and instrumental music. So a girl was talented. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And if that doesn't convince you enough, she performed in the choir and was a cellist. She played the cello in I junior high. At 13 years old. Like, girl, get it. She was also loved by everyone. Quote, Esme was life. She always had a smile and always knew when we needed a hug, which was a quote by her artistic director at the school. Since this girl was literally all around awesome, she was also, you know, an athlete at 110 pounds. And one day she wanted to get a run in for a 
I'm assuming the upcoming track season. And she wanted to go for a run at around 3.45 p.m. And she actually asked her mom to go with her so she would like have company on her run. And at first, Mama agreed. But you know when you're putting on your running gear and thinking to yourself, I'm really just not feeling this. You mean every time I go running? (laughs) Every single time we strap up? (laughs) Yeah. So that's how she was feeling. So she says, Esme, you go ahead. I promise I'll go with you on another day. And Esme says, okay, no big deal. I'm only going to go on a short run anyways. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. 20 minutes comes and goes, and mom thinks, no big deal. Maybe she's taking it slow today. But then 30 minutes pass, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and mom starts to get freaked out. And about an hour in, she goes out to the normal running path that her and Esme take, and she's nowhere to be found. Family members and friends search for hours and hours for her. And without any luck, they are forced to file a missing persons report at 10 p.m. that night. So a little over six hours after she went missing. A few hours later at 1 a.m., she is still not found. Police take this to the next level and issue an Amber Alert for her. Unfortunately, this would be of no help because two and a half later, because two and a half hours later at 3.30 a.m., Esme's body was found in a wooded area near the running trail. She was found nude except for the tennis shoes on her feet. Her clothes were not missing, however, because they were tied around her neck, which quickly they came to the conclusion that she died of asphyxiation due to strangulation. Another horrifying thing that was found was that her body was burned on the lower part of her body and her groin. Like by a lighter or? It just was like burnt to a crisp. Okay. So I looked this up because my first thought is, why are you only burning the lower body and groin? Is this to cover up a sexual assault? Like why else would you just burn this part? And I couldn't find, like, a specific scientific answer behind it, which, to be completely honest, I didn't deep dive that far into it because it's a weird-ass thing to search. Um, Yeah, I would not switch over to Google Images. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I don't want that on my search history. But one kind of random interesting fact is that there were a lot of scholarly articles about how sperm firefighting, which is basically sperm being exposed to fire, impacts fertility. And, and especially with patients with severe burns. So just an interesting fact to throw in there. Okay. So although Cincinnati is a city that, you know, has homicides just like any other city, there's not very vic- many victims that are burned. I mean, usually people are like stabbed or shot, right? So there were two other cold cases of victims that were burned found in Cincinnati only a few years prior. The first cold case was of Cassandra Crawford. Cassandra was born on October 26, 1991, and died on May 9, 2006, making her only 14 years old. She was found in a wooded area about a week after her disappearance, dead. Her body had been burned, just like Esme's. The second cold case was of Mary Jo Newton. Mary Jo was born on February 16, 1961, and died on June 15, 2006, making her 45 years old. She was found near Bankhead vacant building again burned just like Cassandra's and Esme's so back to Esme again police are standing over this nude body and they don't want her to end up like the other cold cases that I just mentioned so they waste no time searching the area and they're like we need to spread out and find the piece of garbage that did this right now but the search didn't last for long because moments later they found a random man laying up against a tree at again 3 30 in the morning This man was named Anthony Kirkland. There's no way someone would do that and then stick around the scene of the crime. 
Hmm. You, you say that now. You say that now. So let's talk about who Anthony Kirkland is. He was born on September 13th, 1968. And really, that's all we know about his childhood. We know some traumatic surface level things like he was abused growing up and he used drugs as a child. And he was apparently involved in a bicycle accident as a child as well and did not wear a helmet. And we all know about, you know, good old frontal lobe damage. Right. So now let's get on to what we know more about his criminal history, which (laughs) buckle up because this is going to piss you off. Okay. So his very first crime we have on record is, you know, murder. He murdered his girlfriend, Leola Douglas, in 1987. She apparently had refused sexual advances for one reason or another, which you don't ever need a reason because no means no, and that sent him into a frenzy. He began choking and beating Leola before deciding to douse her in lighter fluid and set her ablaze. Her dead, burned body was found on his front porch at the time. The worst part of this already disgusting, horrifying story, he would be convicted of voluntary manslaughter and served 16 years in prison before his release in September of 2003. Wow. He served 16 out of 25 years. Now, I have no idea why he was only convicted of manslaughter. Like, my brain's not comprehending that. If you set somebody on fire while she was alive, how is that manslaughter? So, because I went into a rabbit hole with this. (laughs) The definition of manslaughter is, quote, the crime of killing a human being without malice aforethought, so no premeditation, or otherwise in circumstances not amounting to murder. But he killed her. So he murdered her. So they're saying he didn't have premeditation. He just set her on fire. And the only thing I can think of is, like, if he did murder her because he wanted sex and then she wasn't giving it to him. He he wouldn't have planned that, so it would have just been like an instinct where he gave himself over to whatever urges he had. So that's kind of what I thought, too. Kind of like, you know, he snapped. So I think, though, it should have pushed him up to second-degree murder, which second-degree murder is typically murder with malicious intent but not premeditated. Yeah. Or, you know, like I said, I went into a rabbit hole with this. So first degree murder is premeditation and you kill somebody. But there is no law that says how long premeditation is. So premeditation is like some wife could pick up a rock and hit her husband in the head. And that could be first degree murder, even though she didn't mean to kill him. Because she knew that she was picking up the rock. She premeditated that and she hit him in the head. So I don't know. Regardless, he got manslaughter 16 out of 25 years. So now he's out in 2003, but now he's a whole new man and prison changed him. And this story is going to have a great ending, right? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. In January, 2005, Kirkland was accused of raping a neighbor at knife point, but eventually he was acquitted of the charges later that year. I have no idea why. I was to be like, uh, <laughs> no idea why. Between the time of 2005 and 2007, he met a woman who I hope didn't know about his past criminal charges or was just naive to them, but he ended up having a son with her. In 2007, he threatened to kill this infant son during a standoff with a SWAT team. 
He only served 115 days in jail for this, for taking an infant and holding him at knife point with a SWAT team. I don't know how his judge saw past his criminal record and only sentenced him to that because that's not even four months. Um, I said, this guy should go buy a lottery card and spend like his good luck on things better than like being a criminal. Yeah. I mean, four months for that case. I mean, people have less time for maternity leave. Yeah. He, yeah, they do. That is a wild perspective. But this guy's a criminal, and in his mind, he keeps getting off the hook for the horrendous crimes, meaning he can keep doing what he's doing. Less than two weeks after he was released, he solicited his new girlfriend's 13-year-old daughter for sex. And good thing that his new girlfriend, like, was like, no, that's not okay. Good. Finally, somebody. Called the police. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good thing. And good thing that law enforcement took this seriously because he's sentenced to a year in prison. But don't worry, he has to register as a sex offender. After his long prison sentence, he enters a halfway house in 2008. Not even six months of living there. In February 2009, he was caught in a fight with another person living there. What the fight was about, I have no idea, but apparently it was Kirkland's fault. I know, shocking. And the guy didn't press charges, but Kirkland was forced to move out. And now a lot of times I know when you are in a halfway house, that's part of your parole. Right. So if you get kicked out of the halfway house, you broke parole. You have to go back to prison. Well, this fight happened on a weekend night and, you know, parole officers were off duty. So they just didn't even report it. They didn't want to bug them. When did they find out? They didn't. They didn't report it. Ever? No, they did not report it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. On March 1st, 2009, seven days before Esme was found dead, Kirkland had broken into a house and attacked a man with a pair of scissors with the intent of robbery. Kirkland had fled the scene, but the man survived and was able to identify him. A warrant was now out for his arrest. But still, now we're back to March 9th, 2009, seven days later. And we're back to the officers finding Kirkland laying up against a tree because he was probably homeless. And he probably had nowhere to go. So that's why he was in that area. And they brought him into the station for questioning. And when he was brought in for questioning, in his jacket, officers found a knife, a purple wristwatch, and an iPod. Guess who had gone running with a purple wristwatch and an iPod? Yeah, Esme. So they started off simple. Did you see a young girl in the area, area you were in? And obviously, he's like, nah, 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 I didn't see anything. But they quickly crack into it, and the officers say, look, this watch and iPod was found in your jacket, and it belongs to her. And he denies, 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 and after about seven or eight hours of questioning, Kirkland finally cracks. He says, it's all my fault. She died because of my hatred. And he's saying it in a tone that is just annoying. Like, I listened to the tape, and... That's really the best way to describe it. He's saying it in a way that he's the victim and woe is him. Yeah, of course he's the victim. Yeah, and that he can't control his hatred and, oh, gosh, I'm just awful. So this pisses the cop off, and he literally says, quote, you want to play fucking games with me, your cat and mouse with me. I killed her because of my hatred. Well, what does that mean, Anthony? 
and he's still being quiet and not necessarily giving anything of quite yet. So instead of the bad cop technique, aka the real human feeling technique, he tries a technique called forced empathy. Forced empathy is basically putting someone else in someone else's shoes. The detective says, okay, look, a mother and a father's kid is dead. They are looking for closure. They are hurting. You're a father. Can you imagine if something like this happened to your son? Yeah, he can because he held his son a knife point. Yeah. So he was appealing to his senses as a father. Kirkland actually starts crying. So the technique is working and the officers play this to their advantage. I see tears coming out. I know you have a heart and soul. What's in your heart? Cole is in his heart. So he confesses to Esme and he says that he was walking down the road and drinking a beer and she was just, you know, jogging. And one way or another, they ran into each other. And I mean, this has kind of like happened to me before and I'm sure everybody else, like when you're looking at a stranger and you're like, are you going to go this way? Are you going to go that way? Like, Right, you do the little dance. You do the little dance, yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe that happened. Maybe he purposely ran into her. I don't know. But all in all, this made him drop his beer. Poor baby. According to Kirkland, she profusely apologized and just said, here, take my watch as an apology gift. That No, there's no way. That's exactly what I said. I'm like, there is no way a 13-year-old is going to offer you her probably her favorite watch because she made you spill her beer. So either way, if she said that or not, this sent him into a rage. He saw her running into her as a malicious planned attack. In turn, he says he saw his son's mother in her, who he absolutely despised since he had that protective order against her to see his son. Which, who caused the protective order? Right. You idiot. Esme supposedly begged with him, saying that she would do whatever he wanted, just please don't hurt her. So being the sick, twisted individual that he is, he asked if they could have sex. She said, okay, even though she hasn't done it before. Which even if she did say that, which I highly freaking doubt that she said that, he's trying to play it off as she gave him consent. Right, and that's not what it was at all. No. She he, was clearly under duress. He was, she was under duress, and he raped a 13-year-old. Like, he's a disgusting piece of shit. Afterwards, she told him that she wouldn't tell anyone, but he said he didn't believe her, so there was no point. No point. That's when he claims he choked her from the back. So as I mentioned the other burned cold cases earlier, the police started to ask about those. And, you know, this wasn't all at once. This is like hours and hours and hours of interview. I'm just trying to put it into a neat little package right here. Officers led into, you know, Cassandra Crawford and Mary Jo Newton. And he actually confessed to both of those as well. And remember, both of these murders are from his point of view and what he said happened. So, as I always love to say, take this with a grain of salt. He said, Cassandra, as a reminder, the 14-year-old walked by him as he was smoking weed on a stoop, of course, near high school, because creeps always hang out near high schools. Did he drop his weed, too? Yeah, probably. God. Did you drop your blunt? Um, So, she sees him smoking, and she was a bit of a rebellious team, and she wanted in on it. And she said that she had snuck out of her grandmother's house and asked if she could have some. And he said he chuckled and responded, aren't you a little bit young to doing those things? 
And he claims that she stated, I'm old enough to be doing a lot of things. If she did say that, she was probably trying to be cool. And yeah, trying not it's to not be, an open invitation. Try not to be seen as a child, saying, I'm old enough to smoke. But being the disgusting splat of a human he is, he said, well, what about sex? I'll pay you $20. She refused, and this sent him into a rage. He grabbed her and started hitting her, and, you know, she was a fighter. She fought back, and she need him. She got away for a second, but unfortunately, it was no use. He got a hold of her and choked her out, eventually killing her. And then, as we know, he burned the body. The second cold case, Mary Jo Newton, he claims that it was an acquaintance of his, and she was a sex worker. He picked her up in his van one night, and they ended up in a park called Eden Park. He said that Mary wanted more money and more dope, and I wasn't going to give it to her. So that became a problem. They got into an argument, and then she was like, I'm just leaving. I'm getting out of this van. So she gets out of the van, and he chases her. And he says that she hit him in defense, and he got her and took her back into the van and choked her, and he killed her in the van. As we know from that, he burned her body. So officers are shocked, and they're like, shit, this guy's a real piece of shit. And as they're about to conclude the interview, he's like, wait, don't you want to hear about the other one? No. Because, you know, all serial killers do this. They love bragging. They love knowing that they did the horrific crime. He then confesses to the murder of Kimya Rollison. She was a sex worker. Kimya was a mother who was trying to get her life back on track by entering rehab. She had only been in the area for a few months when the contact with her family stopped. So she was working one night and he picked her up in her van or in his van as well. After trying to pay for sex, they got into an argument. I'm guessing like he was trying to short her or something. And she had a blade on him and came after him. He hit her in the throat and he hit her hard and blood started coming up. She said she couldn't feel her legs and he said he held her. Which, why was she hurting in the first place? Like, I feel like he was trying to be like, I'm showing compassion. I'm holding her. Yeah, there's her. not a compassion. There's no compassion because you did it. <laughs> he then burned her. Her body was found by a woman walking her dog in the woods who found her femur. I can't imagine walking my dog and finding a femur. And if you remember, that's what happened in the West Mesa murders. Yep, on the beach. On the beach. That's how the whole thing got started. So if you notice with his victims, besides his ex-girlfriend in 1987, he doesn't go searching for them, really. They come up to him. They bump or run in or talk to him. He doesn't try anything unless he is talked to. Another thing, the elephant in the room is that he burns all the victims. Why is he burning all these victims beyond recognition? And you see, his answer is why I think half the stories he tells from the victim's point of view are bullshit. Like, I think he just wanted to kill them because he's a piece of shit. So I think it's minus the conversation. It's minus Esme saying, here's my watch. It's minus Cassandra saying, I'm old enough to be doing a lot of things. He said... Get rid of evidence. Why would you think that's why I'm burning the bodies? No, I'm just purifying them. You know how the Vikings did. I, there's no words. There's n no words. So he was saying like he's doing them a favor. One, if he wasn't trying to destroy evidence, why only burn the bottom part of Esme's body? Two, he's not a Viking. Shut up. And three... He used gas as an accelerant. 
So he's full of crap. The Vikings didn't pour gas on their purifying victims. That's not purification. Right. That's to speed up the process. So he is held on a $5 million bond in 2010, and thankfully no one bailed him out. So in 2010, he went on trial for all four victims. He got the death penalty since his crimes were so heinous. So thank God, right? This guy is finally behind bars. This monster is going to rot and die. Case closed, right? Please don't say he appealed. (laughs) That would make too much sense for the case to be closed. So his convictions remained in place, but the Supreme Court issued Kirkland a new trial from sentencing because of some of the comments that were made from the prosecutor in the jury or in the case. So specifically, the prosecutor suggested that if the jury didn't sentence him to death, that the, quote, girls would be freebies for Kirkland. You aren't allowed to say stuff like that, though. So can you explain, like, why, like, is it an emotional attachment? Because I'm trying to understand why you can't say that. From my limited point of view, Mm -hmm. you're allowed to say like you should give him the death penalty but you can't invoke an emotional response so it can't be like an emotional attachment basically because then they would think that oh he did it i don't if i didn't sentence him to that it means that he's getting away for all those murders because i'm not giving him the death sentence so that's not fair kind of like gaslighting pretty much yeah he's gaslighting the jury okay okay so that makes more sense when you say it like that Since he got a second trial, he had a second shot of just life in prison. So his new trial began in 2018. The defense focused on his mental health and his surface level abusive childhood. And they basically said his mental health is poor. You can't sentence somebody to death like with that. Like he can't go to death. The thing is, though, Kirkland tried to lie at first and deny his crimes and tried to say he didn't know what the officers were talking about. That's rational thinking. He knew consciously that he was wrong. That says opposite to me. The defense brought in a doctor who testified that the brain scans that Kirkland had correlated with someone who had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. This is a brain injury associated with violent and aggressive behavior. The defense is basically saying, yeah, what he did was horrible, but there's a very scientific reason behind it. And the jurors want to know the answer to the question. Why did he do this? And I'm giving you the answer. This is why. But a doctor hired by the prosecution, though, basically said this doctor's a quack because these scans are 100% normal. So I think the prosecution is right on this one. The defense doctor was hired by the defense, and he had testified in over 100 cases in the past several years. Of those cases, only about 2% of them, he said that the defense did not have an abnormal brain scan. Yeah, that's not good. So he's kind of like Oprah. You get an abnormal brain scan. You get an abnormal brain scan. Um, The jury reheard the confession tapes. And Kirkland spoke at trial, too, and sounded remorseful, but I think he's full of shit. And the trial ended, and it was in the jury's hands. Life or death? What do you think? Life. Death. Oh, uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. All of his charges were aggravated murder, times four, abuse of a corpse, times four, attempted rape, attempted robbery. 
This was ruled on Tuesday, August 28, 2018. He's 49 years old at the time. He appealed the death penalty in 2020, but two different juries said that he should be executed, so it was basically denied. He's still alive today, unfortunately, I checked. Cassandra's grandmother spoke at his resentencing. She said to the camera, and she was directing this at Kirkland, You've killed before. You'll kill again. But you have rights? Ha <laughs> ha. Something I'm misunderstanding. Because I thought that when you committed these crimes, all your rights were gone. Then to end, we're going to end on a quote from Leonard Douglas, Leola Douglas's brother. Again, his girlfriend that he killed in 1987. Quote, it never should have happened. After what he did to my sister, I feel like he should have never gotten out of jail. He just got a slap on the hand, and then he turned around and did the same thing to four other females. Yeah, I agree. He's right. He is right. And if you think about it, he served 16 out of 25 years. Okay, so 1987. He killed Esme in 2009. So he theoretically should have still been in prison. Yeah. And if they would have turned him into the probation officers, mm-hmm. it would have changed everything. Yeah. And I mean, even Cassandra and um, Mary Jo. Yeah. They would still be alive. And Kim Kimmel, Kimya, uh, she still would have been alive too. So it's just wild. But that is the story of Anthony Kirkland. I've never even heard of that. And that's really not that far from us either. Yeah. And it happened recently. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. So, yep, good times. Well, great, not, not great good times. story. But yeah, well, thank you guys again for listening. And our Instagram handle is Colts Killers and Cocktails. You should definitely go follow us and definitely give us a nice rating. That would really help us a lot. Yeah, and leave us a message if you have a cult or you know a serial killer or anybody that you just want us to cover, or even a cocktail you want us to make. We will make your cocktail. Yes, we will. All right. Tune in for next time. Bye. Bye.